A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Second Age Podcast. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. And I'm John. This is the prologue. In this episode, we've got two segments to prepare you for the chapters yet to come. First, we're going to discuss who Tolkien was and sketch out some of his biography. Then we're going to do a deep dive into the peoples and geography of Middle-earth so that you've got a better sense of the creation of Tolkien's world. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondageatbaldmove.com, and we'll get to those questions on the final episode, which will be a Q&A. And if you want to talk Tolkien with us sooner, you can join us on the Bald Move Discord server. There's a link in the description below and over at baldmove.com. And be sure to get all the Bald Move and Lorehounds coverage of Rings of Power by subscribing to the Dug Too Deep podcast feed. We're going to be releasing exclusive content on this feed, so you don't want to miss out. Click on the link in the show notes or search for Doug Too Deep in your podcast application of choice. So, John, before we do get started talking about Tolkien, the man, his life, um, let's talk a little bit about what this podcast is, what we're uh, aiming to do, what's sort of our point of view on this. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're a few months out from Amazon, The Rings of Power, which is scheduled to be released in September. At the time of this recording, we've had a teaser. We've got some production stills released. We're waiting for the trailer any day now. We know that Jim and Aaron on the Bald Move Network are going to be doing episode by episode coverage. What is it that we want to do with this podcast? What can people expect from us and, and how are we going to approach this really dense subject area? Yeah, so it is a dense subject area and it's such a hard thing to get your mind around, even if you Google mm-hmm. things. It's hard to sort of right. know where to look. So we wanted to have a brief overview of the history of the Second Age, which is the focus of this show, so that you can be Tolkien literate by the time the show comes out. It doesn't mean that you'll be an expert. But it means that you'll be able to pick things out in the background and have a little bit of fun with it by the time you get to the show. And I think even we're hoping that we'll bring this all the way around, because if this is the second age, uh, the third age is what we know as the Lord of the Rings. And by the time we get there, you're going to have a lot more contextual information to make even that more enjoyable. Right. Even the the third age stuff. Yeah. So quickly, 
Um, how did you come to Tolkien? Like, what's your personal history with with the Legendarium, with Middle Earth? Yeah, I've always been a little nerdy. Uh, back in the 90s, I was at my grandparents' house, and they had on the 1977 Hobbit film. And I loved that. That was great. But I didn't really get into the Lord of the Rings until later in life. I read the Lord of the Rings a little bit in high school, but I didn't really get into them. And a few years ago, I reread them and I immediately hopped into the extended legendarium because it was just such a beautiful vast universe and the more I read about it the more I love the universe so that's why I wanted to do something like this yeah cool it's funny that you mentioned the 77 Hobbit film because I think I probably watched that when they aired it live (laughs) so I'm (laughs) dating myself here as a little bit of a older Gen Xer um yeah, and for me, I don't, I can't remember a time when Tolkien hasn't. I'm just kind of in Tolkien soup. You know, it's it's all around me. I still play Dungeons and Dragons and other role playing games. I think probably I might have even read the 1969 parody Board of the Rings even before <laughs> I read Lord of the Rings. There are some hot scenes in there. I remember passing that Ooh. book around between uh, yeah uh, us grubby little eighth graders. It was oh boy. Uh, pretty hilarious. I've never read any of the Cimmerillion or any of the extended works. I mean, I pretty much just limited myself to the movies and, uh, you know, Peter Jackson's movies, which came well after the original books, but just the three books and the and the three movies, really. So that's my personal history. Yeah, I'm glad that you don't have such a deep knowledge of the extended writings because it sort of helps that you're here to ask questions sort of along with the audience and I'm here to bring in some details from the Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales of Numenor Middle-Earth, History of Middle-Earth, all these extended things that takes a long time to get through, and, you know, everybody's busy. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's going to be really useful and, and uh, a fun format. And I think, too, we should probably just hang a little bit of a spoiler warning here. Like, we're going to be getting into details here. We're going to be bringing in stuff from the extended writings, the the... Amazon show has limited rights. And if you haven't seen or read the books, we're definitely going to be talking about those kinds of things. So just, you know, be prepared when you're listening to this material. We're not going to hold back on on details. Right. So we'll go in assuming that you've either at least seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy by Peter Jackson. That's that's all you need to really know to understand what we're going to be talking about here. But if you follow along with us, there will be content that may show up in the show. So keep that in mind as you go through here. And we'll also have another lore cast weekly to go over what you see in the show once the season starts. Awesome. Yeah, that'll follow after the weekly Bald Move uh, episode uh, coverage. Right. Okay, now that we've got all of that stuff in place, let's hop over and start talking about Tolkien, the man, who he was, some of his bio- biographical details so that we can kind of get a sense of this world that he created. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's so wrapped up in his work. Like, you can't, it's hard to separate the man from, you know, the mythology. And so I I think it's definitely helpful to look at um, the context of his life and the history and the time period that he grew up and some of the things about his family. So maybe just to lay out some quick cornerstones, and then we can talk about some different phases in his life. So uh, he was born in 1892, and he passed away in 1973. So he lived about 81 years. He was born actually in South Africa to uh, English parents. 
And um, then when uh, they moved back, uh, first his father passed away and then his mother did later. And so he was uh, technically an orphan. Um, He was born into a Protestant family, but then his mother converted to Catholicism. So that plays a big thing. Um, He was married, his spouse, uh, Edith. Uh, she turns out to be about three years his senior, which is also an interesting fact. And she passed away in 1971, and they had four kids, and the last of whom, quite interestingly, passed away uh, this last February in, in 2022. So a little bit about his history then is like he was married before World War One, And I think how he and his wife Edith met is, a, is kind of an interesting story. Yeah, yeah. He uh he and Edith were living in the same house. Uh that that uh, the priest that was looking over Tolkien and his brother had had him living at. Uh Edith was at the time trying to be a professional pianist, uh trying to, you know, teach people, trying to perform a little bit. Uh somebody had suggested that she live with this woman who loved to have music at her parties. Unfortunately, that woman only liked to have music at the parties. She wouldn't let Edith practice much. And so Edith was pretty <laughs> depressed and Tolkien didn't very much like this woman either. And they sort of commiserated together over how miserable they were at this house. Uh-huh. Uh, they would go out and they would play pranks with each other. They would, you know, just get into all kinds of mischief. And, and I think they just fell in love through that formative experience. And yeah, so, and I mentioned before, she's three years his senior. And mm-hmm. so even that in that, time and age is something a, a little bit different. And then didn't his um, his ward, this this Catholic priest that he was sort of assigned to, I guess you could say, he like forbade him from seeing her for a period of time? Yeah, it was a really tough time for Tolkien and, and for Edith, but I think uh-huh. more so for Tolkien because he, he was really deeply infatuated with Edith from like uh-huh. the moment they met and uh, right. his mother had had given custody legal custody of him and his brother to uh this priest uh who was a really important man in Tolkien's life and Tolkien really loved and respected this man I don't mm-hmm. want to demonize him in any way No uh, no he was he sounds like a, by all accounts quite a quite a kind man Yeah just for reference he he was putting his own personal money into raising these kids he wasn't just giving them what the mother left for for them uh, uh-huh. And he didn't need to do that. He was really very concerned with giving them a good upbringing and making sure they were mm-hmm. well rounded individuals. And uh, so he had told Tolkien, you know, you're not going to talk to her for three years. When you're 21, you can make that decision. But for now, I don't want you talking to her. You need to go focus on your studies. If you don't, I'm not going to let you go focus on your studies. You're going to have to do something else. And Tolkien was a man who was very intellectual. He had a lot of goals in academia, and he wasn't going to take that risk. So he actually abided by this command by the priest to not talk to her for three years. Uh, Unfortunately, she was engaged the minute. Right, she got engaged. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. She got got engaged. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I was just saying. So she and and then what happened? Like he like showed up again one day on her doorstep or something. He wrote her a letter the day he turned twenty-one. Said, Uh "I'm here. I'm ready." She said, great, but I'm engaged. Uh, but she sort of <laughs> hinted in the letter, if you, if you write me a nice letter, if you, if you come and find me, I'll probably figure out a way to get out of this. And she did. She actually <laughs> mailed the ring back to her fiancé uh, and, and went off with Tolkien pretty much right away. Uh, and and they, were hap- they were happily married until she died. So <laughs> I guess yeah, she made pretty, the right call. 
pretty amazing. And then she later she converted to Catholicism, and and we haven't touched yet on on um, the importance of Catholicism to Tolkien himself, but that. In that day and age, for her to convert to Catholicism, that's kind of a big deal. Um, and that really goes to something about their relationship and their love for each other. It was a big deal. Um, it, it's a repeat of what happened to Tolkien's mother. Uh, Tolkien's mother was raised a Protestant. Her whole family was still Protestant. Uh, they very much conditioned their support of her on her continued Protestantism. And when she decided to become a Catholic, that was very much a personal decision. That was, she was convinced of the Catholic faith. It was very near and dear to her heart. She conveyed that to her sons, especially uh, the Tolkien we know, not his brother. Uh, And I think that when you see Tolkien's deep devotion to Catholicism, you're seeing him wrestle with the feelings he he has about the loss of his mother. Mm. He really feels like this is his connection to her. Between right. that and nature, those are his two gateways to his childhood. And so when, when Edith is sort of hesitant to convert to Catholicism, he's very, very forceful about his insistence. Mm-hmm. And, and she does eventually relent, but I think she did resent that at times. Uh, eventually, she makes her peace with it, but she had to give up a lot of her connections, too. I mean, her family was really upset that she converted to Catholicism. Right. Uh, the whole... Protestant versus Catholic thing was a big thing in England in the early 20th century. Big deal. Big deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, she severed a lot of connections. She lost a lot of a lot of social capital, I think, by converting to Catholicism. And she did it because she loved him. Right. You know, say what you will ab- about her conversion and, and about her, her feelings about it. Like, part of their, their relationship was they really welded themselves to each other. And, and so much so that—, that Edith was a, a source of inspiration for a lot of his writings, I understand. Yeah, he wrote the character of Luthien, who's supposed to be the most beautiful elf in all of Middle-earth, all of Arda, the greater uh, planet of Middle-earth, uh, and all of any of the humans or elves or anything. Luthien is the most beautiful of all of them, and that's who he based off his wife. Uh, right. And then on even on his tombstone... He has Baron and Luthien. Baron was Luthien's love in the stories. Mm-hmm. He has right. Baron and Luthien uh, inscribed on the tombstone. So he really loved her. She was an inspiration. She helped him write a lot of the early drafts of the Silmarillion uh, while he was sick in World War One. Well, yeah, and then that, that's an interesting thing now too, because so they they're married uh, not long together, and then he gets drafted, uh, or actually he doesn't get drafted. I believe he enlists. After he finishes his studies, uh, and again, another one of these great social pressures, just like the, um, their uh, conversion to Catholicism and their faith in, the, in, in a Protestant nation, um, uh, he apparently held out joining the military until he finished his studies, and then he volunteered, and, and I guess he was commissioned a second lieutenant because of his, um, um, his status as a university graduate. Yeah, and it should be noted, too, that a lot of his childhood friends were in the same sort of vicinity of him in the war. Uh, the, the TCBS, they called themselves. I forgot what the BS stands for, but the TC is Tea Club. They, they were the, this tea club that got together and discussed literature and politics. It was his first real, uh, w- what he would cherish as male companionship uh, group. A fellowship. A fellowship, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that fellowship did not last, unfortunately. Yeah, it, I mean, World War One was was brutal trench warfare. 
he was a, a commissioned officer, and so he was responsible for leading his men, especially up over the wall. So he uh, saw a good deal of combat, but then I guess he um, contracted trench fever and uh, then was rotated home. I guess he was quite sick for, for some time, and, and they shipped him off back home. Um, and after that, his battalion, I guess, was mostly wiped out after he left, um, left uh, the European continent. Yeah, he almost certainly would have died in battle if uh, he had not gotten trench fever. So that's a pretty incredible stroke of luck for him. Yeah. So uh, so I guess he continued to be in the military for uh, quite a while, and they had him uh, moved around to various different posts and sort of doing um, um, command work back, you know, in England itself. And then when he mustered out as a full lieutenant, he was a, then able to enter his civilian life and started his civilian career. Yeah, and then he wanted to really go into what was his passion, which was language. And that's where he started seeking positions at different colleges, being a philologist, being a professor of language, and really getting to dig into all these nitty-gritty details of Welsh and Middle English and all of his other obsessions. So this is the this interesting thing, this philology, uh, this this fascination with language, but then also mythology. This is like, so he's he's had this orphan upbringing. He meets the woman that he you know eventually marries and and is in deeply in love with. Sees combat in in World War One, but all this time it's language and mythology which are so fascinating to him. And so now he's actually able to start to delve into that. Yeah, I mean, this whole time, we've, we've sort of glossed over it, but he had been sort of inventing languages as a kid with some of his relatives, just very basic things, but, you know, beyond what normal kids would have done. And he felt like it was normal. He, he was saying <laughs> something along the line of, oh, you know, some kids paint, some kids play music, I invent languages. <laughs> um, right. it, it's a, a very interesting self-image he had, but, you know, he had been reading along with his mother... Uh, a ton of different languages growing up, and I think language is another bond he has with his mother. Uh, she taught him Latin. She worked with him through Greek and a, a lot of other uh, different European languages. Right. And so he was really into reading a mythology in its original text and sort of savoring the details of each word and the choices of words that the writers created. And he was really mourning throughout his life the fact that a lot of Anglo-Saxon mythology was lost in the Norman Conquest, mm -hmm. and he really felt like that needed to be replaced at some point. Which really gets into where he starts to create the worlds of, of Middle-earth and the peoples and the languages. And so during his university uh, career, uh, he finishes The Hobbit in, what, 1937? And then finishes The Lord of the Rings around 1949? Yeah, well, the publisher would rather him have finished that earlier. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. But he was a notorious procrastinator uh, uh -huh. and a perfectionist. I mean, a lot of it was a lot of the things we love about his work, where he said one, one night he was up all night because he was trying to correct all the errors of moon phases in The Lord of the Rings. It's like, the moon couldn't possibly be in this phase on this day, I have to fix it. And he's rewriting entire sections because of of strange facts. <laughs> per perfection is the enemy of the good. 
Yeah, in, in a way, but case. I think it's it's also part of what we love about his his sure the esoteric nature of his work. You know, is is that he makes this world feel lived in, and that was his goal was to create this mythology that that reveals some truth about the world. It, right. it wasn't made up. It wasn't a fantasy world. It was a mythology. So yeah, like when I first read the the original Lord of the Ring, or when I first originally read the Lord of the Rings. You just felt like this world was was fully formed and inhabited, and there were prior ages, and all these people over here and those people over there. But yeah, he really ex- just to to write that in those first few pages to make you feel like this is an expansive world is really amazing, and I and I just can't imagine the upbringing that he had and the experiences that he had to be able to breathe life into that level of detail. You know, no matter how long it took him to work on that, but to to have that kind of vision is just incredible. Yeah, and you, you know, he had written The Hobbit uh, when he was writing stories for his kids. I mean, he sort of the idea of The Hobbit popped into his head when he was grading papers one day. There was a blank piece uh-huh. of paper on one of the students' papers, and he wrote down, "In a hole in the ground, there was a Hobbit." And then he thought to himself. <laughs> I should probably figure out what a hobbit is. And that <laughs> was a lot of how he approached his work was, I'm not inventing anything. I'm finding things out. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, he was telling his friend C.S. Lewis, who he called Jack. Uh, mm-hmm. Jack was having a lot of issues with faith. He uh, w- was an atheist during his adult life, even though he had been raised Protestant. And he was sort of saying to Tolkien, you know, I get what you're saying about all these myths having beauty in it. But they're myths. They're not real, and and they they're not true. How can I possibly believe in Christianity? And Tolkien says, you know, that's where you're wrong. Mythology is revealing a truth about the universe. It's not a lie. You know, Tolkien and Lewis eventually agree that Christianity is the true myth. But you know, I think that this this whole idea that mythology is revealing some truth about the universe is really at the core of what Tolkien's trying to do, especially in the Silmarillion and the works around the Second Age. Indeed. I, I think for anything to have, I mean, if, if we look at Lord of the Rings as a whole, just all of the things and then, you know, the, the books themselves and, and the movies that Peter Jackson did, for this body of work to have had the impact that it has had, it, it has to necessarily be saying something to us. Um, and and talking about the human condition in some way, and I think you you'd provided me with a, a quote, um, and I think this is Tolkien saying this, and I'm just going to read this one sentence where he says, "Indeed, only by mythmaking, only by becoming a sub-creator and inventing stories, can man aspire to the state of perfection that he knew before the fall." And so here he is; he's made this myth, this mythology in the Lord of the Rings that has like carried on and just became a, a huge global phenomenon. And I think even as it sort of started to blow up in the, I guess in the 60s, that he actually had a hard time dealing with his fame and fortune to some degree. Yeah, he thought his fans were insane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will say he thought that they were insane for loving his work so much. Uh-huh. Uh, or, or rather, rather than that, he thought they were insane for loving him so much and focusing right. on him rather than the work. But right. he also was notorious for responding to pretty much every fan letter until wow. it became so out of proportion that he couldn't. And then his publicist would help him with it a little bit. 
But mm-hmm. he, at first, he was responding to every single fan letter. He would spend hours a day. That's actually part of the reason he didn't finish the Silmarillion, is he was too busy writing letters to fans <laughs> of The Lord of the Rings. Plus, um, he was working as a university professor until he, I think, retired in 59. So maybe he retired a little bit before he really became that big a phenomenon. Yeah, he had agreed before he got big to do two extra years of work past uh-huh. the... the minimum retirement age and he totally regretted that because by the time he was at that two-year mark he was making enough money to just support himself with his writing right right so yeah so then he passes away in in uh well actually edith passes away in 1971 and then he's i believe is he knighted in 1972 or 1973 i think it was in 72 and then he passes away in 1973 so like really close tied into his the his wife and and you know he 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 sort of hits this pinnacle of being recognized by receiving a a knighthood and then that's it um that's the end of his story uh as a as a person walking on on the earth but then what christopher his son um is his literary executive and takes on the work from there i think yeah christopher and and his father had a, a big kinship uh, mm-hmm. I think that they they felt like they were kindred spirits, and Christopher was given explicit permission by his father that if if he died, please finish and publish the Silmarillion. He he had intended that for publication. Any further writings that was a unilateral decision of Christopher to publish, but Tolkien absolutely wanted the Silmarillion published. He originally wanted to publish it with the Lord of the Rings as a companion piece. Interesting, uh, but okay. it just didn't work out with his schedule. Right. So I think to me, and, and we're going to maybe touch on some of these r- related themes later on, but like when we look at, at Tolkien and his life, like a few things jump out to me. One are his, the importance of his faith to him and the belief in Catholicism itself, not just Christianity, but Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, the importance of his spouse and his children. Uh, from all accounts, they were a very close family and they enjoyed spending time with each other and with children and grandchildren. Obviously, as you pointed out before, his love of languages and mythology. And then interestingly enough, his love for nature. He had a deep love of nature, which I think we also see uh, ex- being expressed in in the Lord of the Rings trilogies. Yeah, definitely. And, and that nature, mo- most of these things can be attributed to his relationship with his mother. You know, this the faith, <laughs> the languages, the mythology, right. the nature. Right. His entire adult life, I think, is a response to losing his mother so early and wanting to right. rekindle that childhood joy uh, and can rekindle that for his children too. Well, and notwithstanding that, the, I think to me what sort of the capstone is, is like here's a man who rid- lived a very rich life by any standards. And, and he used a lot of that experience directly and indirectly in, in his work and in the context for his writing. And I think that really shows that he, as a fully formed person who lived a very full life, that, that is very much reflected in, in the words that he put down on paper. Yes, I'd agree. I'd agree. Yeah. He, he really knew how to synthesize his experiences and how to glean truth from them. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
And we're back. Okay, so let's talk uh, a little bit, a little bit, a lot, uh, about the creation <laughs> of this world. But, like, why should we care about this? Great question. So the events of the Second Age are the root cause of many of the conflicts in The Lord of the Rings, including the rise of Sauron, the arrival of the wizards, the destruction of the Rings of Power, and the lack of a king in Gondor. So knowing that background is going to help you understand the events in the Prime series, but also it'll give you sort of a richer understanding of The Lord of the Rings. So this mythology can get really biblical, and it has a, you know, having a really broad understanding of this mythology will allow you to navigate the complexities of the show and of the lore in general without getting so lost. Wow, okay. So that uh, that really does uh, set down some context for us to uh, dive in to... Um to the of context. the context, <laughs> the context for the context, meta context. So I guess the first thing we should kind of talk about are the ages, because we hear, you know, we're, we're kicking this around a lot. We've got the the third age, which is Lord of the Rings. We've, we're, we're the second age podcast, the first age, like um, break it down for us. What's going on over here? OK, we got three ages that most of the things happen in. And then we have a fourth age right at the end that not a lot happens in so far. But so we have the first age. And that's from the creation of the world and sort of the rising of the elves until the defeat of Morgoth, who's this Lucifer Satan character we'll go into a little bit later. But the defeat of the first big bad. Got it. First age. So that's the first age. The second age ends with the initial defeat of Sauron and the finding of the ring by Isildur. Remember, you see that in the Lord of the Rings. So uh, the, the, sorry, the second age ends when they cut Sauron's fingers off. Literally, that's the... Boop, that's the, the clapper that comes down. Right. When when he's totally defeated, that's the end of the second age. And the third age can begin from there. Okay, cool. So, again, the third age starts then. It ends with the final defeat of Sauron and the destruction of the ring at Mount Doom. And the fourth age begins after that. We don't know how it ends. <laughs> the ending doesn't, you right. know. That's just, you know, Aragorn becomes king. You know, you see it in the Lord right. of the Rings. Okay, so we've got the ages. This is the second age. The Rings of Power Amazon series is going to be in and around the second age, right? But mm-hmm. n- now we talk often about Middle Earth, but Middle Earth is really just a region on a world in a universe. Right, yeah. So here's some vocabulary for you. You have Ea, which is creation. Wait, so that's like everything. Ea is like everything? That's the universe. Right, okay. Yeah. Then you have Arda, the world. Okay, so that's like the planet. That's that's Earth. So those are your two things, and then Middle Earth is a region on it, and we'll go through the geography a little bit later. But then we just refer oftentimes to this world as Middle Earth uh, synonymously with Arda. So you may hear your... Yeah, it gets sloppily thrown around. and It's it's more easy to say than Arda. Arda um, sounds... uh, Yeah. So we just say Middle Earth a lot. Sounds a little bit more foreign. Okay. All right, so who's living in Arda? Well, just outside of Arda is Eru Iluvatar. Mm. He's the creator god of Tolkien's universe. You know, he lives outside creation, but he created everything. And, you know, this is the big Abrahamic monotheistic god of Tolkien's world. Remember, we talked about in the Tolkien the Man segment how he's a Catholic. He's, he's big, big into his faith. So here is his big god in the sky. Okay. So when he begins creation, he begins by creating the Ainur, which are the holy ones. They're sort of like demigods or angels. Mm, Okay. So the Ainur are further subdivided into the Valar and the Maiar. Now, there's a lot of words there, 
But really, here's the concept, is that you have Eru Iluvatar, this big creator god, this Abrahamic god, and then you have this pantheon, like the Greek pantheon. Okay. So that's all you have to think about is you have the creator god, and then you have a pantheon of this like polytheistic. And some underneath. of these gods are more powerful than others. Some of them are, are hierarchically in different successions, but they're all within the pantheon. Right. So the Valar are the powers of the world. They're the highest ranking Ainur. So they are the ones who sort of enact the creation plan of Eru Iluvatar. Within them, though, is sort of this rebel angel, this Lucifer-type character named Melkor, also known as Morgoth. He's got two names. That's his Lucifer-Satan dichotomy. Okay. And Eru Iluvatar sort of answers this dissonance, answers this rebellion by saying, I've got some plans in the future. And there's a couple themes that you'll know they're coming. I'm going to create some people later. And they're going to be an answer to you. And all that you do that is evil, I will turn to good. That's a big theme in Tolkien is all that you do in evil, I will turn to good. Interesting. Okay, cool. That's a cool theme to pay attention for. So the Valar go into creation once they've created it. And they settle eventually in the west of Middle-earth in a place called Ammon. Okay. They rule over the planet. So... This Eru Luvatar god, the creator god, is sort of a remote creator god. Right. He's outside of creation, literally. Yeah. So he's not really directly intervening as far as we know too much. He's, instead, he's sent his emissaries. He's sent his, his Greek pantheon mm-hmm. to go rule over the world. Okay. All right. So next step down, we have the Maiar. Mm-hmm. So they are other Ainur other than the Valar. Okay. They do have significant power. They have less power than the Valar, but each one of them is attached to one of the Valar. Right, and so we got to, what's what are some examples of of Maiar? Because I think we we encounter some, don't we? Yeah, yeah, all over the place. We got Sauron, we have Gandalf, we have Saruman. So these more powerful beings that you see in Middle Earth end up being forms of the Maiar. All right, and each one has a patron. Yeah, they all have a patron saint. I guess. <laughs> got it. Okay, cool. All right, so uh, so the creator, Eru Iluvatar, decides that he's going to counter note by creating the elves. Right, so he's got two sets of children, two sets of the children of Iluvatar that are the counter to Melkor's dissonance in his symphony. And so the first one is the elves, which are the firstborn. Their lifespans are the same length is the lifespan of the world so they're functionally immortal okay there are many different groups of elves but we'll bring in the differences in a later episode when we go over sort of the uh different right we've got a whole deep dive the the taxonomy of right we've got a whole deep dive on this right right so the elves remember they're these like immortal beings tolkien sort of conceived them as men before the fall so there are these more perfect children Interesting. Okay. And so who's who are the other children of Iluvatar? The other children of Iluvatar are men, the second born. So Eru Iluvatar granted them the gift of mortality. Okay. Not even the Valar know when where men go when they die. So this is a big mystery. This is a gift to them, really, because they get to leave creation and go rest rather than being stuck there forever like the elves. But... We'll see that some characters are going to prey upon that mystery and sort of turn that into fear to get to evil ends. Interesting, right? Yeah, the doom of man, as uh, Elrond says, and that's uh, a, a significant point, which we're, we're going to get into more too. 
Exactly. And so we also have the Dunedain within the men. So these are the men sort of like Aragorn, who are a group of men that helped defeat Sauron's master, Morgoth Melkor. And as a reward, they uh, get longer lifespans, they get greater strength a little bit, they get their own paradise island, and we'll get into that over the next episodes. Okay, cool. Now, what? How do we? How do we reckon the dwarves? Because if if Eruvatar only had two ch- two sets of children, where where do the dwarves come in? So the dwarves are a weird one, as Gimli will attest to. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> the dwarves are a weird one because they're not created by Eruvatar at first. Oh. Instead, they're created by Aule, who is one of the Valar who spe- who specializes in smithing. Oh, okay. And he's saying, you know, I know that there are some children coming. Uh, this is before the elves have come, of course. So I know that there's some guys coming, but I really want some kids of my own. You know, I, I'd really like to have some little buddies running around. So I'm going to create these dwarves out of the earth and uh, I'll animate them. And he's playing with his dwarves. He's having a good time. And Eru Luvatar comes down and says, all right, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm the king. I'm the creator god here. What have you done? Yeah. Right. right. This is, Yeah. And so Ally is like, oh, no, it's not what it looks like. Um, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to thwart your plan, and and uh, don't worry about it. I'll get rid of them. And Eru Lubitar is like, look, they don't even have free will. They're just following your your guidance because nobody right. can give you There's... the breath of life, really, except the creator god. Mm, right. They're just wind-up toys. Right. They're vessels. And so Aule picks up his hammer to go smite the uh, the dwarves. And at that moment, they cower in fear, and Eru Luvatar basically winks at Ali and is like, I got you, buddy. Uh, I, I gave them the breath of life. I've animated them. I see that you weren't doing anything for the desire to thwart me. You were just, you just wanted to create them out of love. So here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give these guys the breath of life, these seven dwarf lords that Ali created, but I'm going to make them slumber for a while, because these cannot be the firstborn. My guys are the firstborn, so I'm going to, I'm going to make them sleep until at least the elves are in the world. Interesting. Okay, so that's very... Uh, I think there's an important point here um, is that the intent of creation here. It was like he wasn't trying to usurp uh, Eru Luvatar. He was just uh, taking some joy in the act of creation. Exactly. And there's some Binding of Isaac theme in there, Tolkien the Catholic. Totally. <laughs> you know, he's taking up his hammer. I'm going to get rid of him right. to prove that I'm loyal to you, Eru Luvatar. Who does that sound like, Abraham? Right, right, exactly. So, yeah, the dwarves are a weird one. Okay. And hobbits? Uh, we got to talk about What them. do we do with those? Yeah. We got to talk about them because they're in the trailer. They're not really in the writings of this period. Oh, interesting. Okay, so they're not... Okay, all right. So, all right, so break this down. So, it is probable, based on, like, the prologue to The Lord of the Rings, that they did exist during the Second Age. Mm-hmm. However, they are not necessarily written about. They're not written about... and Anything about them is not written about in the Second Age. They really come into their fruition, into their full nature in the Third Age. What the show has done is sort of sidestep this whole issue by calling them Harfoots. Harfoot hobbits okay. are a group noted in the Lord of the Rings, but it's it's sort of a population within hobbits. It's not really a primitive hobbit. So they're sort of sidestepping the issue. They could do good things with it. They could not. 
we'll see what they do. But we're not going to really talk about hobbits in this series. That's the main point. Is okay. that there's really nothing in the writings from this period. All right. So just bracket them, set them aside, and um, um, and just move on. <laughs> and if you're here, you know what a hobbit is. You don't need me to tell you. <laughs> right. You know, we we can we can just box them up just like we do with the movies. Put them in the closet. Forget that they're there. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, Sorry, okay. Peter. So <laughs> um, he did it to himself. Uh, we've got elves, we've got men, and we've got dwarves. Mostly we're going to be talking about elves and men in this series. Geography. W- where are we in the world here? How is the world structured? There's lots of maps that you can Google online, but let's talk about um, some of the meaning and, and locations of, of, uh, of this world that he's created. As we begin to talk about geography a little bit here, we kind of have to deal with a little bit of a sticky subject um, in terms of geography and the meaning of geography. Yeah, you know, all authors are products of their time, right? Tolkien was born in South Africa, we talked about, a British colony. He was a proud Englishman. And he certainly at least subconsciously reflected a sort of colonial attitude when he wrote his uh, books. Right. So the worlds that he's populating here have a certain cultural cast that he's projecting. Yeah. So really the way that this shows up is just that as you go further west, you see greater civilizations, you see holier lands. And in this universe, in this fictional universe, west is best. West is the best place you want to be. Okay. We can talk about you know, at length, what that means about his personal views of the world and how reflective of that is. For this purpose, we're just going to treat this as a fictional universe, and we're going to just remember that in this universe, the holier beings live further west. Okay. All right. So, fair enough. We're um, there. There's plenty of space for for cultural criticism uh, in this podcast. We're just trying to get a, a breakdown of the lore and the history of this stuff. Right. Okay. Exactly. Cool. All right. So. Now that we have that, we have three main areas in the Second Age, and we'll go into more specifics as we go through, but here's the main areas. You have Ammon all the way to the west. Those are the undying lands that you hear them going to at the end of the Lord of the Rings. Okay. That's where the Valar live, and most of the Maiar. Uh, that's where a lot of elves live at that time. And you can't live there if you're immortal. You can't live there as a man or a dwarf. The exceptions are made at the end of the Third Age, but that's about it. Okay. Then you have further east from there, but not too far, is Numenor. And that's going to be the main topic of the next couple episodes. That is where these Dúnedain are going to settle, and that's where Aragorn's ancestors are, these like great men. And that's our Atlantis story that we're going to see. Okay, cool. All the way to the east is Middle Earth. I know, counterintuitive, but all the way to the east is Middle Earth. (laughs) And that's where most of the story of the Lord of the Rings takes place. And at the time of the Second Age, we have a population of elves, we have a population of dwarves, we have a population of men, we have a population of hobbits, probably. So... Those are our major areas. We'll get into more specifics as we go through, but that's mostly what you need to know. You have all the way to the west, you have Ammon, you have in between, you have Numenor, and then you have all the way to the east, Middle Earth. Great. Okay, good. I think that should forearm us pretty well in terms of digging into the next topics that we have. We've got 
how many chapters do we have laid out? So we've got, in addition to this one, we have six more chapters of pre-recorded content that will outline the actual lore stuff. Then we'll have a feedback episode. And then once the season starts, we'll do a weekly lore cast. Okay, great. Cool. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to this series and really digging into some of this uh, deeper lore about elves and about this island. Um, what's the island called again? Um, Numenor. Numenor. And uh, getting into the setup for the show. So, great. Uh, anything else that uh, we should touch on? I think I'm good, so we'll see you next time. The Second Age Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage at baldmove.com. For more Rings of Power content, subscribe to Doug Too Deep on your favorite podcast app. Ad-free versions of this and all other Bald Move podcasts can be yours by going to patreon.com slash baldmove. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.